You are listening to My Top 10 TV Podcast. Hey, well, what do you know? It's another episode of My Top 10 TV Podcast. And today we have someone who, when I came up with this format, I knew I wanted to get on the show. A TV critic for The Times and host a hugely popular Saturday morning show on Times Radio. And believe me, when you hear his all-time Top 10 TV shows, you'll absolutely understand why I was so keen to get him on. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mr. Hugo Rifkin. Enjoy. You are listening to my Top 10 TV podcast. Send us your Top 10 TV shows, list them from 10 to 1, and we will read out the best. Well, my number 10 is The Good Place. Uh, and the reason why my number 10 is The Good Place is, I mean, it's, it's a bit odd to start with a show that's so unlike anything else, but it's so unlike anything else. And you wouldn't have thought at this point in the sort of the, the history of this medium, somebody could do something that was so entirely new. Uh, it's, I mean, The Good Place, of course, it's, you know, it's the people who... Uh, uh, dead people, <laughs> dead people sent to heaven, or so they think. Uh, don't want to give too much of it away. Um, what I love about it is Michael Schur, the writer, just doing. You can tell he's just doing exactly what he wants. You can tell he's sort of. It's the sort of show that you perhaps think of as a writer early in your career. Don't get to make until you're an absolute superstar. And um, and it just it's sort of packed full of um, all the gags are great. It's sort of it's very meme friendly. It just creates a. Uh, it, it creates little nuggets that stick in your mind forever as, as soon as you've watched it. I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'm a philosophy graduate, which probably has something to do with it. But yeah. I think it's just an excellent show. The moment I fell in love with it, I think I can't remember if it's the first episode or the second. It's when, uh, I, can't, I can't remember precisely what happens, but Eleanor does something she shouldn't have done. She lies or she she, she pulls some scheme and everything starts breaking and going yes. wrong. And suddenly yeah. everyone's, everyone's dressed as bees. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you just sort of thought, the, just the, I don't know, the mind that just to, what was going on in the writers' room? Was going. What if they all come out and they're just basically dressed as bees? Yeah. You know, everything's, everything's gone so wrong that everyone just looks like bees suddenly. And it was just, I don't know. It's just so off the charts in terms of the ideas that that, um, that it, it, it is captivating. It's it's an acid trip in a comedy show. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and I love I love Janet not being a robot, not a yes. robot, yeah. again and again and again. And yeah. um, and the way she's sort of like the she's kind of the moral heart of the show, despite being the only sort of non non-creature really well. excellent so that's a really good starting place for your number 10 so uh and almost sublime to the ridiculous uh your yep. number nine my number nine is faulty towers you can't have a top 10 without faulty towers in it comedy doesn't age well it really doesn't a lot of things that were incredibly funny in the in well, in, in, in the 80s and 90s never mind the 70s um are just now it's sort of excruciating and and, and, and awful. I mean, I, I, for example, I don't know, Only Fools and Horses, I think, is not a great watch these days, despite how strong it was at the moment. Even Blackadder kind of suffers these days, yeah. despite being so very strong then. Things like The Young Ones, which I adored, mm. they just haven't, it just hasn't quite worked. No. Faulty Towers has just worked. It, it still, it still works. It hasn't aged. And I think the reason why, I mean, maybe, maybe the reason why it feels like it hasn't aged is because it's so similar to the best comedies of now. You know, you've got you've got Basil Fawlty, just this perfect sitcom character, in that he, he he's lacking in self awareness, but very very clear in his motivations in what he does. He has he's oozing with social aspiration. Uh, you can see his flaws written out on the page, and you just look at you look at every sort of um, major sitcom since then. He's in all of them still. You know, he is Edmund Blackadder. He is David Brent. Yeah. He's Hyacinth Bouquet. He's all of them. They're yeah. all there, packaged perfectly. 
but the, in terms of the comedy, in terms of the beats, in terms of the um, the, the, the structure of the, from, you know, one episode to the end, it's, it's still flawless. It's got every kind of marquee of what makes mm. comedy, whether that's wordplay, whether that's obscure situations, whether that's irascible uh, characters. Uh, it does have the slapstick. The stuff with Manuel, I mean, literally assaulting him with a spoon. And yes, you know, there's, yes. there's, there's, so, there's so many aspects of that that you kind of think it wouldn't work, but it does. But I did a, I did a slightly odd thing, but it was enjoyable at the time um you don't know where this is going um that uh, i went and did a bit of a deep dive on other programs that were faulty towers in other countries right and and america have had five different iterations of faulty the faulty towers format um oh, and, and, it's and, and you can get them on youtube and they're full episodes and i mean they, they've used pretty much all of the scripts um mm -hmm. the settings the same it's a hotel in a seaside resort there is the basil uh, character. Uh, interestingly, B. Arthur was the ba the Basil character in one of the iterations, which was which sounds great from a casting point of yeah. view. None of them got past the first episode on each se season. And why do you think? I mean, having seen them, what do you, what doesn't work about them? Um, I think because they were trying to recreate what John Cleese did. John Cleese and Connie Booth did. Yeah, and it just it doesn't quite. And I, th I think because maybe the American humour was slightly what? slightly less kind of you know in tune to it but you would think that it would be because it's all about class really isn't it that's exactly so of course it doesn't work in america no and 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 you're right that they don't in fact i'm trying to think if maybe one of them did have an english actor playing him right. but he wasn't john cleese and so of course he couldn't do john cleese mm. yeah definitely faulty towers is a fantastic number eight okay so moving on i think we're on to your number seven it is top of the pops two not Top of the Pops, Top no. of the Pops 2. This is very important. <laughs> exactly um, the question I want to ask, why the two? Top of the Pops 2 is this magical thing that I've never... Like, it's, I, I believe they don't make it anymore, which to what extent that even means anything because they haven't made Top of the Pops radios. It's still sometimes on. I never know when it's on, but it is a programme that when I'm sort of it's late at night and I'm flicking through the, the TV listings, it is a programme I cannot stop watching. <laughs> if it is on, then I'm sitting there until it stops being on. That is just That is just a thing. And I think if that's going to happen, that's got to be in the top 10. Because there aren't many programs I'll do that with. There's yeah. almost there's almost no other programs I'll do that with. Some old dramas will get me like that a bit. Top of the Pops 2, if it's on, I'm there. I'm stuck like a, like a rabbit in the headlights, whether it's, you know, Rod Stewart and the faces from the late 70s, or whether it's, you know, Nirvana getting the words wrong, or some weird dance act from the 80s, or, you know, I don't like sort of, you know, strange periods of sort of free Happy Mondays, 90s, you know. It's just, it's always just such a sort of cultural trip. And I, I just, I just adore it. And I'd, I'd, I'd spend all day watching it if I could. It's, it's basically what all those, I remember the, I remember the 80s, I remember the 90s, et cetera, type programs. It's what they're aiming for. Yeah. It's just, it's sort of packaged. It's, it's both sort of nostalgia and it's like, it's sort of, I often find it quite educational. You know, yeah. I mean, because I'm never normally going to sit down and watch a Kate Bush video. But, you know, all of a sudden, <laughs> well, not a video, but, but a performance. All, all yeah. of a sudden, there she is. I mean, I, I, I do. I'm sure there's an there are economic reasons for it, but I do often wonder why there are no real sort of you know live music shows. Yeah. And I just and I find um yeah, top of the box to do it's just a it's a bath of nostalgia. It takes me back to a million different places. Nice phrase, bath of nostalgia. I'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're on to your now. This is your number seven. Uh, yes. List, so please give it to us. This is Deadwood. Uh, Deadwood, the Western pioneer uh, sort of HBO big budget. Was it was it HBO? I think yeah. it was HBO. Uh, big big budget. It, it's basically like a lot of those other big shows, but it was um it was just completely captivating. I've never quite been able to figure out why it was so captivating. 
thinking back to Deadwood and why it was so captivating, it's quite hard to say. Not that much really happened beyond people occasionally fighting and killing, killing each other. All the action happened in one bar and one street and the occasional other house. There weren't big set pieces or anything like that. It was just thrilling. And I, it, was, it was, again, another program I couldn't stop watching. It, of course, got cancelled. Uh, after season three, uh, because I guess I mean I guess it didn't it didn't get the ratings. Although it's one of those ones that everyone looks back and says that shouldn't have been cancelled. I mean they, mm. they brought it back for a film, um, and the film didn't it didn't quite have the magic I felt. It's one of those shows that you feel like you do have the dirt under your nails and you can smell them yeah. anymore, and it it just felt very very visceral. Kind of it was so immersive, and I, th- I think also because Ian McShane is such an amazing character actor that mm. he kind of you know, he does he does he does live those roles. And I just felt it was just kind of, it was really raw. It was very, it felt very honest. But you're, you're right. It was just so, it was so immersive. It's, one of, it's the sort of show that, um, it's the sort of show you dream about when you're watching mm. it. Mm. You know, it, it, it sits in a part of your brain and you're always there a bit while it's, while it's um, and, you know, and, until you finish and, and, and forget about it a bit. Well, and also that, I mean, there hasn't, you know, I'm trying to think if I'm, if I'm missing one obvious, there hasn't really been a, a Western film that did what Deadwood did. Because it was, although it was in, um, although it was in many respects a classic Western, hmm. it was about feminism. It was about racism. You know, there was, I mean, a lot of it was about racism. There was, a, yeah. I forget his name, the, the the Jewish deputy sheriff, and there, there was, of course, the whole the Chinese community. Mm-hmm. You know, there was all that kind of stuff was spiraling around um, in a way that um, it almost, almost sort of quite, quite modern themes put in that setting. Um, so it, yeah, it, it works on every level except for obviously being. Good enough for them to do <laughs> <laughs> which clearly it didn't. <laughs> but apart from that, it's absolutely flawless. Apart from that, yeah. Apart from the, apart from the, apart from the, the, the collapsing business disaster that was Deadwood. <laughs> didn't put a foot wrong. And the commissioner saying, no more. We've plowed yeah. so much money into this. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Great choice. Uh, so on to your next, please. Oh, uh, my next my next choice is Fargo, the TV series of Fargo. Now on its, uh, it's just done its fourth season. I believe yeah. there are to be more. What I love about Fargo, every season is great. Sometimes they start and you think they're not going to be great, and then they just absolutely are. The um, uh, what's it? Let's say the word, the gestalt of it. You know, the world of it. The mm. um, the way it's uh, it's obviously derived from the Coen Brothers, but not by the Coen Brothers. But you can just sort of feel that kind of that sort of Cormac McCarthy pessimism yep. saturating it, and yet it's incredibly funny. It's uh, it's it, it, it's brilliantly violent. It's um, it. it 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 just it, it it covers you in its vibe and you and you, and you can't you can't stop thinking about it and you can't stop thinking along the lines that it makes you think. I think it's mm. a magical show. Yeah, no, it's it, it's and it's one of the very few I think that really has made a life of itself after the, a, a successful film because the film did really mm-hmm. business as well. So to then go, oh, we're going to recreate this, we're going to revisit this, and yeah. then, you know, kind of gone further as you say, season four now, uh, and obviously just another incredible UK export that is Martin Freeman, who just yeah. another, another actor that just doesn't seem to take a bad role. The fact that it's a what's the word? It's like an anthology series, yes. uh, anthology, anthology program. So, so it's a, it's a different different plot with overarching a bit, but not very much yeah. each time. To pull characters like that out of the hat, to pull out Martin Freeman's character, Billy Bob Thornton's character, you know, Ewan McGregor's character later on, Jesse Buckley's character from the last yeah. one, you know, and just chuck them out for a season and go, oh well, that's done now. You know, you could, I mean, you could, you could build a sort of, you know, a sort of six, a sort of, you know, six season epic around any of these people. 
yeah. And so it's just it's just such sort of dense brilliance, yeah. And how great for for an actor to you know have a have the thud on the letterbox of of a script that's coming from Fargo <laughs> and just think right, we're going to give you a character that you would have died to play for, and now yeah. we we'll give it to you. It makes you right. It makes it makes every it makes every actor into a character actor. No, no, exactly, exactly. And, and I think you're right as well that it's kind of one of those shows that really that you can see when TV's done well. It's just yeah. you know nothing nothing can touch it. Yeah, it's sublime. Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's that's absolutely right. Almost the downside to it is it can almost be it can almost be too perfect in mm. that it's all it slides into your life and it slides out of your life. And I don't, I'd probably struggle now to remember exactly what happened in each of those each yes. of the four seasons that there yeah. have been. Well, another, I mean, the first one I rewatched quite recently, but uh, but the other ones just because it's so bump free there's no sort of jagged bits to, yes. to sort of hang up to hang on your memory. Nothing for you to cling on to. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, but uh, but um. But that's that, that's not really a criticism. Okay, so please give give us your number five. My number five is the eighteen. So I think the soldiers of fortune in whatever the Los Angeles underground was. I'm never quite clear on that. Yeah. Uh, it's um, it's and if base, you can find them and afford them, if we can find them, and <laughs> maybe yeah, it's uh, it, it's base, it's Hannibal, it's Howling Mad Murdoch, and it's the Pierre Baracus, and they are bounty hunters, and it's a sort of nonsense program, really. But it was on when I was a kid. Uh, I can't believe it only lasted for four years. Uh, somehow they managed. Really? To, somehow they managed to pack in ninety-eight episodes in four years, which makes you think that's just. I mean, the the, the schedule there must have been completely insane. Yeah. Um, there wasn't much overarching plot really, although there was a bit because they were being hunted by the military police. Colonel Decker. Yeah. Uh, it it because there was so much of it, and because it hit at that particular period of my childhood. I guess I've been around the age of ten when I watched mm. most of it. Um, there are bits of it I remember we talked about shows that get into your dreams there are bits of it that I remember as if they were dreams like um, you know <laughs> and particularly I think um, I, before there was in that sort of period of my life when I sort of ceased to be a child but before the internet came along my yes. sort of late teens early 20s yeah. really trying to sort of you'd sit in pubs and you'd say things like do you remember that Boy George was once on an episode of the A-Team and people <laughs> would be like no, you're mad. And there was no way of checking. We were like, no, I'm pretty sure. I remember him kicking down a door. And it was yeah. funny that he'd kicked down a door because he was gay. Yeah. What? You know, and there were things like that. Boy George was on an episode of the A-Team. Yeah. You know, I mean, just remarkable. Like, towards the end of the A-Team, um, they basically linked it up with them with the man from Uncle. They did? They had, they had Robert Vaughan and David McCallum in there and things like that. So I said, did I imagine that? Was that a dream? Did that really happen? Yeah. So I, I, I mean, the A-Team was, you know, I, it was one of those shows that I don't the only thing that was like the 18 for me in my life was Star Wars. One of right. those shows that are that become the the, the sort of the uh, the firmament and the background for the games you play with your friends and your toys. Yeah, the you building know, blocks um, of what would then yeah. be your adolescence. Yeah, I would not be me were it not for the 18. For me, growing up and watching that was just it was the perfect bit of escapism because mm. it was a plot that you didn't struggle to follow because they were all exactly the same it was kind of the scooby-doo principle of plot writing is kind of it's always if it wasn't for your pesky yes. kids kind of thing and you know somebody dressed up as a monster but um, <laughs> the fact is that you had these four really kind of visible characters that you can identify and everybody had their favorite for me it was it was mad dog murdoch because i just right. he, he was just completely on a different plane and he was incredibly funny and humor kind of you know spoke to me a lot more um but i think it was also the fact is that it was always sunny the mm-hmm. weather always looked great whenever they were doing it no one ever got hurt killed or shot 
mm-hmm. and all of the kind of stunts they did, you can you could see some of the ramps that were flipping over the cars. You could see some of the special yeah. effects actually working in real time as well. And it was just such a joyous kind of romp. Yeah, yeah. I, I had I had all the toys. I didn't have all the toys. I had a lot of the toys. When my neighbor I used to play it with had, had a lot of the toys. I was a I was face face was face was right. Guy. Although I didn't like his clothes. I didn't like the way he always wore a suit. So yeah. I had the I had the toys of the because you you got the little the, the, the little action figures but also the slightly bigger ones. Yeah. And I think I think if I remember rightly, Face was wearing a suit in the bigger one. And so I pulled his head off and swapped his head with Murdoch. In the pilot episode, Dirk Benedict wasn't Face. Who was Face? It was a random some um, random wow. sort of yeah. Barbie Ken actor who was was Face for for the pilot, and that was it. Because it was post, it was post Battlestar Galactica, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, yes. So he'd so, so already been a fairly big name. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I think you can actually get the pilot on YouTube, and yeah, there is definitely it's def- the face is not face. <laughs> face has the wrong face. Yeah, <laughs> I'll have a look at that. That sounds fun. Uh, fantastic. I've got this, this is this is the part of your top 10 that I started to squeal with delight once I, <laughs> I knew that these were in there. So I, I, I have I've literally waited over a week now since we first corresponded mm. to, to, to talk about this one particular show. This is D'Artagnan and the Three Muscahans. <laughs> this which, is um, just inspired. Which uh, it, was a, it was a strong contender for my, my, for my, my top of my top ten, to be honest, because uh, <laughs> I loved this show so much. D'Artagnan, for anyone who's not yet had the pleasure, this is a sort of early 80s, I think originally Japanese, cartoon adaptation of The Three Musketeers. Yes. In which... Almost everybody, not everybody, a bit weird, but almost everybody is a dog. Yeah. So instead of D'Artagnan, you have D'Artagnan. Instead of Musketeers, you have Musket Hounds. But other than that, it's incredibly faithful to sort of revolutionary class, <laughs> which is quite weird. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, it's like it's not like they're living in a sort of like dog-based town. No one ever mentions that they're dogs. No. They just happen to be dogs. They're irrelevantly dogs, which is kind of like, I don't, I'm not sure it would have been a very different show had they not been dogs, had no. they just done it with people, it would have been do- fine. And dogs with opposable thumbs that can fence. Yes, dogs, and 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 the, and the sexiest dog is in fact a cat, which is just weird. I <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of didn't be allowed. But um, this, um, basically, this was on. So I must have been. I don't know. I was. I was a small child when I yeah. watched this. Uh, and it was. Um, I think there were were there was like two or three seasons, but episodes in the in the mid twenties, 24, 25, 26 episodes. Yep. I watched every one. It was something I sort of ran home from school for. It was appointment to view, uh, absolutely. I did I, I did not miss one. And and nor did I there were other sort of epic shows a bit like this, like Cities of Gold, if you remember Cities of Gold. Yeah. Which I never quite it came around a few times and I never quite managed to go the distance on Cities yeah. of Gold. Uh, you, Ulysses was around about the same Ulysses, time. Ulysses, I loved as well. Yeah, uh, but uh, and again, Ulysses would always be like, oh, "I haven't seen it for a few weeks. I'm not quite sure what's going on anymore." Yeah. This was um, this wasn't like that. This I just managed to get the whole lot perfect, yeah. every single episode. I think I must have watched it right through two or three times because there was a there was a, a sequel series eventually. I just absolutely adored it. It's yeah. got that whole um, I mean, it's the Three Musketeers. So you know what it's got, but it's yeah. got that whole uh. Sort of Luke Skywalker thing. D'Artagnan mm. is basically Luke Skywalker. Uh, I mean, I still, if the if if the if if the real Three Musketeers comes up, I still do find myself talking about D'Artagnan yeah. and risking sounding like an idiot. But it's just what happens. Uh, D'Artagnan, you know, he's the he's 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 the he's the he's the sort of he's the boy from the wrong side of the tracks who's brilliant yeah. with the sword, who um who sort of who becomes a hero, and um and it's got a bit of a love story, and there's a lot of creeping around in castles. And um, I, and there's probably never been a show that I've, I've I've loved more, no matter that I was like eight or nine years old at the time. 
and and you know the the, the Richelieu character is is as evil and as devious mm-hmm. as, as as ever could be, and you do you you, you know the, he had a you know very visceral reaction. You hated him, and you yeah. just you wanted D'Artagnan and the Muscans to always win, um, and of course not forgetting possibly the greatest theme tune ever. One for all and all for one. Musket hands are always ready. Absolutely, yeah. It's yeah, just, no. it, 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 I mean, that that's an earworm that's lasted nearly 40 years for me. And it's, which is interesting to think because it must have been, well, it can't have been the same in every language, right? No. And because given it was Japanese first. I think it was Japanese and then it was in sort of France and Spain before it yeah. came to Britain. Yeah. So our version of the theme tune must be a, a late era version. Yes. But again, yeah. it's good to come back to it. I think what made it so good was how irrelevant it was that they were dogs. <laughs> you know? It was like it was almost like um it was almost like when they'd made it and you know they sort of took it to the studio and the studio would have been like, you you know they're all dogs. Yeah. You know, it's like because yeah. it's never mentioned that they're dogs. No, There's no. no doggy things. They don't woof, they don't bark, they don't woof, nobody eats from trees. a bowl. No. Yeah, n- n- none of that. You know, they walk around really being, you know, if you're going to make a, a sort of a, a, a cartoon about about the three musketeers, this is the one you would make. And yet they've given them all the heads of dogs. But I think it was a golden time for animation because, uh, you know, we, we mentioned like Ulysses and there was Battle of the Planets as well, which I, yeah. I really adored at about the same time. And there was obviously um, Thundercats. Thundercats, of course, but, yes. Again, another feeling slightly odd that you fancied the female cat-like. Yeah, but also why there was only one one female cat. It was a bit yeah. Weird. Also, the fact that they were all different cats. So what would whether that was a yeah. worked out in future generations? Um, so we've going gone from uh, Dog Tanyan, which again is an inspired choice, uh, to your third one, which is this is the first time this program has been mentioned. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm fascinated to hear why it's your number three. Right. So this is Edge of Darkness. Uh, Edge of Darkness, a sort of nu- political nuclear thriller from I believe 1985, which is mm. a really long time ago. Mm. Why I first saw Edge of Darkness, I'm not sure. I think in my early 20s, I lived with a bunch of them. Um, uh, sort of big TV geeks, basically in a flat share, and we and they had everything on VHS, and we watched we watched this. So I mean, basically, what, what Edge, Edge of Darkness is about? Some uh, well, the plot is roughly there are some nuclear activists who go missing while they're infiltrating a nuclear plant, and some nuclear materials get stolen, and there's a policeman played by Bob Peck who's trying to figure out what's happened because one of the activists who is uh, was his daughter, more or less, roughly what's going on. But it's the backdrop is kind of sort of, how to put it, it's not quite recession, but it's, well, I guess it's sort of the 80s recession. It's sort of bleak Thatcherism, but it's very it's very much sort of got that kind of 1980s nuclear dread back, sort of backdrop to it. Basically, but the reason why uh, it's always stuck with me since I saw it is, and this may be a controversial thing to say, but I reckon a lot of TV before about, well, before the golden age of TV in which we were lucky to live in, was just rubbish. Mm. People don't think it was rubbish. They didn't know it was rubbish at the time. People hadn't figured out how to make TV yet. Lots of these classics, supposedly classic shows, Brideshead Revisited and so on, are just shit when you watch them. <laughs> you know, they just started. No one's quite figured out. They haven't yet figured out what TV is. And so, so I, mean, I mean, genuinely, and sometimes TV is, uh, is theatre but not on a stage. And sometimes it's a film that's not quite happening because it's not a film because the budget's less. And they haven't figured out what TV is. The remarkable thing about Edge of Darkness, and not all of it, because it's, what, six or seven parts, I think, and it, mm-hmm. frankly, sort of slightly disintegrates towards the end. But the first few episodes, it is every bit as good as 
something that would be made today mm. and every bit as good in the same sort of way as something that would be made, be made today it kind of it sort of holds its own it holds its own with the bbc thriller you devour on iplayer but with it, it holds its own with an hbo yeah. and yet it is a it is a 1985 british weird little program uh, yeah. and it's um yeah and so i just it, it, it it's one i've never quite got, got over also bob peck is so very fantastic in it and really didn't do much after that. He, he, he died not long afterwards, didn't he? He, he? he did. He was, after that, he was in the first uh, Jurassic Park movie. Was he indeed? He, he was the ranger, know. yeah. And, wow. and, and me, meets a horrible demise in that. Yeah, gosh. I mean, he, I mean he's, he's so like he's so good in it, but you sort of think it's um, it's amazing that having been in it, he's not um, he, he's not remembered as one of the great, yeah. the great British actors. Yeah. I, I think it, it is, I think within sort of TV world, I think it is held up as being, or his performance is one of the best performances in a mm. sort of home, homegrown drama, which, you know, difficult subject matter. And as you say, it was Thatcherite kind of grey, you know, kind of miserable, you know, everybody's having a terrible time. There's, you know, kind of yeah. the nuclear cloud is hanging over all of us kind of thing. And yeah, yeah his performance is was, was quite brooding, I seem to remember. Yeah, I mean, very brooding and he's got a very software software speaking that makes him seem quite sort of dangerous which is almost uh, more menacing when people much yeah whisper. it makes you scared when people shout at me i just go oh shut your blather but when they whisper that's when i get really frightened a lot of threatening mumbling and he just has this sort of supreme <laughs> supreme confidence yeah. and you do i mean you're right you do sometimes i mean i can't think of anything offhand but i've certainly when i've been reviewing tv I've I've mentioned the fact that there are performances you can see that that's that's derived from his performance in Edge of Darkness. Yeah, you know because it was it was such an unusual way of presenting yourself on screen at the time. Absolutely, and and again, an unusual choice from from your point of view because it is. It's a you know it's a BBC drama from the eighties that, that there wasn't and you, you talked about classic shows and people always kind of go oh you know remember the shows back in the day if you look at them now a good example would be something like Bergerac people just went no oh, it's one of, it's one of the one of the best it's terrible yeah, it, it's terrible and again yeah. it's kind of you know sort of these terrible kind of faux fights these these, these ridiculously paper thin plots they're just you know the the fact that Bergerac was successful is because it looked pretty and was on Jersey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, excellent choice. I love that. Thank you. Um, and now on to your number two. This is yeah. going to be all your numbers, numbers ones and twos. Uh, that one to give away. Look, of course, it's The Sopranos. It is a show that I can rewatch forever. It surprises me to find out. I did not. Um, I did not realize how rich it was at the time, much as I enjoyed it at the time. So it was remarkable to think that it was conceived as a comedy. Um, uh, it? it was. It was meant to be. It was basically meant to be the the thing that turned into the film that was uh, analysed. This, you know, it was. Um, I did not know that. Uh, and um, and actually, that's why it's got this sort of you know mordant wit running through it, because you end up you've got comic situations, but certainly in the first few episodes, they're mm. being delivered. Um, you know, by the time they were filming it, they were like, "This isn't a comedy," but there's still the structures that remain. But it's also it's got really quite sort of subtle messages as well about. Like away from the mafia stuff, the mafia, mafia, mafia stuff is always thrilling. Right? Yeah. That's a given. But away from the mafia stuff, there's really quite subtle messages about about immigration and about class. It's fantastic on class. Yeah. I mean, the, I, the big point, the big point of the Sopranos that is only really sort of rarely acknowledged is that Tony Soprano is living the he's living the mobster dream. But what that means, living the mobster dream, is that he has about the same social status at best as a dentist. <laughs> right, you know, I mean, he, he, like he does, you know, he's basically punctured up into this new class where his, his kids go to school with their kids, they invite them to dinner parties, and they're dentists, you know, they're, they're dentists, they're accountants, at best, they might be lawyers. He's much, much more frightening than them, mm. but he's still 
like he's not you know he's not he's not jeff bezos he's not the super rich hmm. he's just managed to punch his way into the sort of the middle of the sort of topish bit of the american middle class yeah and, that, and that's the limit of his horizons and that's a really quite a sort of a, a subtle message to get in a show that is also thrilling for just how good people are hitting each other in the face with pistols yeah yes yeah a magnificent show so of course it is it's fun um, and i think it was one of the first shows that kind of did that well-worn trope now but at the time wasn't was that kind of fish out of water scenario where, mm-hmm. as you say, he's kind of he's he's thrust into a world that he's not entirely comfortable with and doesn't entirely know and you know doesn't know the tropes, doesn't know the airs and graces, doesn't know the kind of things you need to do. Uh, I think what it did really well, and obviously because of his performance mainly, was just showing his vulnerability. I just think that was it, just remarkable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no one ever thinks about the form of set, but um, <laughs> but it, 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 yeah, it, and of course it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't just him. You know, the, the sort of um, uh, Chrissy Christopher Monsanto, the the nephew character. I think had a had a lot to do with the kind of the, the strength of the show and they began to have that sort of generational difference and his aspiration that was so different from tony's aspiration which was all to do with basically to do with celebrity and media and he wanted to yes. make films but again he was an idiot so he couldn't he couldn't yeah. kind of get there um i think that was remarkable whether it was insight or just fortune that actually the kind of things that consumed him as a character are the things that kind of consume so many more people now. And it's yeah. not a quick fix. It's about the kind of, you know, it's about, you know, it would be the equivalent of getting likes and shares and whatever it is now. And that's mm. kind of what he's sort of focused on, um, which I think made that kind of whole character dynamic between the two of them really compelling. I mean, that actually, that's a, that's a fascinating point. If you look at the Chrissy and Chrissy and Adrian, Adriana, are, um, I mean, they're, they're Instagram influencers, aren't they? They're, yeah. you know, in, in, in an age before we, we even knew that was a thing. Yeah, I mean, but that's what I love about rewatching the front. That, again, I mean, it's almost up there with Top of the Pops 2 if it's on. I sort of can't <laughs> look away from it. Uh, almost, almost, I would say. But just because it gives you a little bit more each time. And it is frequently hilarious as well. Yes, I think, yeah. I think Paulie, is the, Paulie is the funniest character. There's, there's something hugely disarming about a program that kind of deals in kind of the the, the dark and the, the undercurrent and the, the, the sort of low, low belly of society but can make you howl with laughter at the same time yeah. I think that there's a real talent to be able to do that and it also makes you think it makes you ask the question do it you know would, would i want these lives how would i live if i had these lives yeah. um and uh and uh you know and and be sort of so aware of being captivated watching people that you really wouldn't want to be anywhere near at all. I would love there to be a DVD of The Sopranos somewhere and you flip it over the back and it says, nearly as good as Top of the Pops 2, Hugo Rizzi. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now, obviously, I mean, fantastic list. Uh, and now we've got your number one. My number one is, of course, The Wire. Surely I'm not the first person to have The Wire as number one. Uh, not as a number one. It has been mentioned in the yeah. list, but not as a number one. So, obviously, I... I struggled with whether it should be above or below The Sopranos mm. uh, because in its to its detriment, I have probably watched it from beginning to end only twice. And, right. and I watched it by myself and then watched it with my wife. And so I haven't, it's not a show that I've sat down and rewatched in the last, however long it's been, 10 years, mm. much more, 15 years, whatever. Um, that being said, I remember thinking while watching it, not just the best TV show I'd ever seen, but the best creative endeavor I'd ever consumed as a consumer. Wow. Uh, I just thought it was just amazing what it does on so many different levels. There's, the, there's the big picture stuff, the way David Simon takes a different aspect of, you know, of the of the city in- infrastructure and basically just kind of teaches you about it while teaching you what the problems are with it while constructing a plot. There's that. But there's also the way every big plot is reflected in a hundred little plots. 
the way there are the way in some levels it's a soap opera and yet it's not a soap opera the bravery of it so i mean i think i think a lot of the bravery of it for me is summed up in the character of omar but because omar's a cartoon character basically mm. right omar he's like he's like a superhero you know he's completely unrealistic in everything he does he's a, he, he, he's he's the best at gunfighting he walks around with a swagger he wouldn't he wouldn't in, in the real world he would it just wouldn't work a camera you know he would be arrested or shot very very quickly yeah. but such is the confidence of this show so much of it is has such kind of heavy integrity and brilliance you can put a cartoon character right in the middle of it and it only makes it better. A yeah. lot of other shows couldn't do that. I think it's a, really, it's a real sign of how incredibly well-written it is. But also just how um, the way it moves from community to community and it's just so captivating about all of them. Obviously, you've got all the... You've got Stringer Bell and and, 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 and Boxdale and the, you know, the, the sort of the, the drugs gangs and you gradually learn this sort of pantheon of all the people around them. A bit like learning when you learn about all the Greek gods, you know, and mm. how they relate to you know, everybody else that you know by the... By the you know by by the end by, by by the last season, but then also, I mean, there's the the season set at the docks. Yes. Um. The yeah. uh, I think it's the third, I believe, where all of, all of a sudden you're in a you're in a Bruce Springsteen song. Yes. You know, and it's just the, <laughs> and how that can be the same show. Yeah. Um, that I, I that was the one that I love it, and I, I I can't agree with you more. But I think that was the. That was my only stumbling block. I assimilate this with kind of, you know, it's like I was running a marathon and I tripped over a curb and that was season two was the curb for me because oh, really? I didn't, because I was so immersed and so kind of invested in the whole kind of, you know, urban culture, the gangs, the drugs, the kind of the, the how that was all kind of, you know, meticulously put together so that you understood every single nuance mm -hmm. of what was happening with which kid and which delivery and what, you know, and all of that stuff. And then I think the first the first two episodes, you basically on a boat in the middle and like, you know, sort of, you know, the, the Hudson or wherever it is thinking, yeah. I don't I don't get this. And I think they're, they're basically fishing a body out of the out of the river at the time. Yeah. And I was just like, I, I, I had to check that I hadn't downloaded the wrong program because I think I was getting it off. <laughs> I can't remember what platform it yeah. was at the time. But I was convinced that I was watching something else that wasn't The Wire. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. Because for me, that was the point at which it, it stopped being just another program. Because mm. it was suddenly, suddenly it was like, it was sort of, it was a vision. I think, may, I mean, I'm sure a lot of the reason why I would love it and was so impressed by it is um is journalism, right? Mm. It's because I'm a, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a TV critic, but I'm I'm only latterly a TV critic. I'm really a journalist. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a features writer. And, um, and so I know what it's like to, uh, to get hold of a subject uh, perhaps quite a boring subject, you know. Like I've done, I've written features about. Actually, I wrote a feature about um, uh, cancel surveillance technology once. It's nice. like slightly, slightly pre the wire, but about how um, how local councils basically spied on people when there were noise complaints and things like that. And you've got a subject like that that you know is interesting, and yet it's very hard to talk about interestingly. Yeah, you know, it's very hard to write something that's interesting about a council officer going into somebody's house and setting up a microphone to listen for the neighbours so that the decibels get to the right or level. You know, and all that kind of stuff. And so the sheer craft of getting what is essentially a journalistic message, which is what mm. David Simon has done, and turning it into just this sort of thrilling show um, is, yeah, it, I've never quite got over, I think. No, I, I think that's that's the perfect uh, upsum of, of what is, uh, well, it's a legendary TV program. Anybody mm. that you speak to that has any interest or any investment in television will always say that The Wire is is in you know definitely top five yeah it has made many appearances in people's lists since i've been doing this podcast mm -hmm. uh so yeah but listen honestly in terms of breadth and scope 
um, I would, I would, I would, I would simulate this as being a meze of TV shows because <laughs> there's been so much in there. And obviously, highlights for me would be obviously the, uh, you know uh, A Team and Dog Tanyan are just inspired choices, and every every other one of them that um, I you know I'm looking at, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. So, were there any in dispatches? Yeah, ooh, that's interesting. Um, well, as mentioned, there was um, there was Better Call Saul. There's that whole Better Call Saul Breaking Bad Breaking ecosystem Bad, yeah. that I felt I couldn't I couldn't quite um I couldn't quite get into. Uh, although perhaps should have done. There are shows I love, uh, like Friends. Friends could have been in there. You know, Red Dwarf could have been in there. Yeah. There was a point where I thought this the the remake of Battlestar Galactica was the best thing I'd ever seen. Although it didn't, although it faded away that show, I think. It did, yeah. But uh, the, the first season of that is just it's a reinvent sci-fi it's just wonderful yeah. so there are things that there are there are things like that that could have been in there that were yeah also news night oh well who isn't yeah, <laughs> yeah. even for the theme tune still one of the it greatest theme tunes yeah. it's great and you you'd probably guess that one is it sports line on itv now so, what, um, what, you do, what you don't see is the look of disdain that my producer always has through the glass when i get it wrong yet again yeah yeah, no, I can I can feel his pain. Having done his job, I can feel his pain. Um, listen, I, I I can't thank you enough. It, absolutely brilliant. One of genuinely one of my favourite top tens, and to obviously discuss them with you at, at such length has been uh, fantastic. So I can only thank you. Real pleasure. Send us your top ten TV shows. List them from ten to one, and we will read out the best. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. My top ten TV podcast is a Euron Mute original production.